Father, it is a testimony to the movement of your spirit that we can fill a room in these days with men and women who want to hear your word. Many people talk about the Bible. Many think they teach it, Father, and many think they know it. And we all fail at some level in what we understand. But nevertheless, Father, when we endeavor to truly understand it, to teach it honestly and to listen to it intently, Father, that is a rare thing these days. I'm thankful for the, for the room that wants it. I'm thankful, Father, for the privilege that it is to deliver your word. I'm thankful, Father, for the content of it and for the life that it gives all those who hear it. And particularly, Father, in the masterwork of the New Testament, the book of Romans, thank you, Father, for this book. How many souls are with you because of this book? How many souls have been lifted up in the day-to-day from despair and from discouragement because of what you've given them in this book? And how many lives have been changed because of it, Father? How many truths have been rediscovered? How many errors have been exposed? How much work have you done through 16 chapters written 2,000 years ago? And yet, Father, it is our privilege to sit at your feet again and hear it once more as you teach us. And, Father, though I speak with the knowledge you've given me, Father, I'm but a man, so I pray, Father, that the words that are really heard are yours, both what you've written and what the Spirit may explain so that you would receive all the glory as you rightly deserve for what you've provided. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, welcome to the study of the most important work of theology in the world, the book of Romans. And as many as you know, I said a minute ago, this is not the first time I've taught it. Uh, I think, as I mentioned, it's probably the fourth time that I've taught this book. And it's because I've studied through it a number of times that I want to do it again. And it's because the message of this book is so important, I don't want to get it wrong. And I hope you're interest in it as a student is similarly focused. Let's get this right. Let's understand this book, not merely pieces of it, but the deep concepts that are in it. And I believe it's truly necessary that we do. In my previous study of this book, I used the first night to provide much of an introduction to the book. And I'm going to do a little of that again tonight. At that time, I think I explained Paul's reasons for his writing and the audience and so on. And there's still some of that to be done, but I'm not going to do as much of that tonight in this next go around on the book, because I think it's better if we spend some time introducing the book as the book introduces itself. And one of the things I've discovered is that you have to understand the structure of the book if you're going to get it right. That is the key to understanding this book. If you follow this with me over the next series of weeks, you're going to see for yourself that a lot of the misconceptions and disagreements and debates in the book of Romans are a result of not understanding a structure, of not understanding Paul's thought process of his flowing through the book. And so the handout you have is is a key to that. You can find it online as well. We're going to refer back to this document throughout the course of the study. Tonight we're going to do the first block. We're going to do the second block. And we're just going to touch on the third. Just get a little bit into the third block. And by blocks, I mean these sections of chapters. So block one is chapter one, verses one through 15, and and then so on. You see how it moves, right? So the first block, it's Paul's introduction to the letter. And as he does in a lot of his letters, he'll spend some time identifying himself and his intended audience and his reason for writing and so on. He does that here. So let's just dive in. I don't want to spend too much time talking about it. Let's actually read it. Chapter 1, we're going to read from 1 through 7, that first half of the first block called the introduction. He begins, Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant, I'm sorry, born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the Spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his name's sake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are beloved of God in Rome, called as saints, grace to you, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is Paul's salutation. It's going to be very similar to others that you've read, although if you're interested in a little trivia, this is the longest one he does of any of his letters. But more importantly than that, there are elements that are going to be very familiar but also very important. We'll start with Paul's typical humility. He addresses himself here as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. Now, as you probably know, in that day, a bondservant, that term was used to describe a slave who had served his required time in slavery to repay a debt. Slaves in that day were generally financial slaves. They were paying off debts. Many of you may feel similarly positioned today. But at some later point when the debt's paid, 
that slave, because of the kindness of their master, they decided to renounce their right to freedom so that they may remain in the service of this master permanently because they wanted that lifelong, irrevocable commitment to live under that master's house. And they wanted it because he was good and he was faithful and they viewed it as a better option than becoming free. So Paul uses that term a lot to describe himself, to describe believers in general, because it captures the nature of our relationship with Christ. Secondly, Paul says that he was an apostle called by God. Paul waged a lifelong campaign to justify his apostleship within the church, particularly against some who would claim he didn't have that that right. His prior life as a persecutor of the church and his unorthodox beginning in the faith were all reasons some chose to question whether he was truly an apostle. So Paul was frequently reminding his readers that he was an apostle by God and by his appointing. And ultimately, Paul would prove his authenticity by his apostolic power. Men who claimed apostleship could prove that claim by showing they possessed the supernatural powers that uniquely belonged to apostles. And that was the way the early church could safely distinguish between those who falsely claimed they were an apostle from those who did claim. And since apostles are the New Testament prophets, they're the ones authorized and gifted to write scripture, it's especially important that the early church know who their true apostles were so they weren't going to follow after wrong teaching. Finally, Paul says his calling was to be set apart to preach the gospel. And the way Paul describes the gospel in verses 2 through 6 That's our first clue to his audience and to his purpose in writing. So what he says about the gospel starts to clue you in on what Paul's doing here. The elements in this description are uniquely targeted to Jews. First, Paul says that in the gospel, it was promised beforehand by Old Testament prophets and Jewish scriptures. Obviously, that's a compelling argument for a Jew. But on the other hand, it has almost no interest to the Gentile who would know nothing of those Old Testament scriptures by and large. The Jews knew to look for a coming Messiah because their scriptures told them to. And Paul says that in the Jewish scriptures, they were told to look for their Messiah coming in the line of David. So that family identity was especially important to Jews, but again, largely irrelevant to Gentiles. And then furthermore, Paul reminds his readers that the truth of Christ's claims were witnessed by his resurrection in Jerusalem and, notice, by the spirit of holiness. And that last reference to the spirit of holiness would have really hit home with Paul's readers, and let me explain why. Paul's writing principally here to the Jewish leadership that was over the Christian church in Rome at this time in history. The church in Rome was located in the largest, most powerful, most prominent Gentile city in all the world at that time. It was growing, it was flourishing, it was drawing converts from among the city's vast Gentile population. So naturally, the church in Rome consisted largely of Gentiles, as was becoming the norm throughout the world at that time. But that church was founded, and it was overseen by Jewish men. Those Jewish believers were men converted to Christianity at Pentecost, chapter 2 of Acts. They were in the city for Passover, which was the requirement for Jewish men. And during that time, many of them ended up in that moment and were converted to Christ by the movement of the spirit of holiness. That's what Paul's referring to here. He's alluding back to their own experience in that moment. I can assure you that's a moment they would never have forgotten. And Paul is reminding them, this gospel I have is the one that was testified to you personally by this spirit of holiness. So these Messianic Jews who had come for the Passover and left with the Messiah went back to their homes in Rome. And once in Rome... They founded the church in that city decades earlier from this moment. It was the only major church in all the Roman Empire that was not founded by an apostle. They were a successful church. They're thriving in the empire's capital city. They can trace their beginnings all the way back to Pentecost. Those are unimpeachable credentials. They could claim the best pedigree of any church in the empire. So it's natural that the leadership in that church would have a little bit of a chip on their shoulders. Meanwhile, you have the church's most prominent apostle, Paul, who has traveled throughout the empire, founding churches, visiting others. That apostle has yet to visit Rome. By the time that Paul writes this letter to Rome, he's already taken three missionary journeys in Asia Minor. And moreover, he's already begun this practice of writing letters to other churches that he is not currently visiting. And those letters, we know this from Peter's second letter, Those letters that Paul wrote were immediately recognized to be scripture in his day 
If you go look at the end of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3, Peter refers to Paul's writing as Scripture. He's written Galatians by this point, 1 and 2 Thessalonians, three letters to Corinth, two of which we have in Scripture. And yet, Paul's never visited Rome, nor even written to them. So the leaders in Rome are feeling a little overlooked by Paul at this point. They wonder, why hasn't this great apostle come to visit us yet? Aren't we worthy of his visit? Perhaps he only cares for the churches he's founded himself. Uh, Perhaps he's worried his preaching can't withstand the close scrutiny of learned Jewish believers rather than just those ignorant Gentile converts that he's teaching. Perhaps he's ashamed to preach the gospel in Rome, fearing Roman authorities will stop him. And then, to make matters worse for Paul, Paul plans to travel to Spain after he eventually makes his way to Rome. That's his missionary purpose or his missionary plan. He knows when he gets to Rome, he's going to need more money to make it the rest of the way to Spain, Tarsus, as it was called in that day. So Paul intends to ask this Roman church for money, for financial support while he's there. This is the church that feels slighted by him. So now, as Paul sets out to write to this church, he knows he's got to accomplish several things here. First and foremost, he wants to repair this relationship on his terms. I mean, after all, he he really can't kowtow to their pride because that's not a healthy instinct on their part. But at the same time, he, he doesn't want to wound them. He wants to recover that relationship. So he's looking for a way to repair the relationship. And yet at the same time, in this letter, he has to announce to them his need for financial support. So if you've ever been a missionary who is trying to win financial support, imagine yourself under these circumstances, right? So how do you identify with an audience you don't even know? You've never met. They've never met you. Paul could not speak in especially personal terms to them. That's one of the reasons why this letter is so impersonal in comparison to many of the other ones you've read from Paul. They all had some degree of personal touch to them, many cases because he knew the people he had founded the church. But here, it's to a group of strangers. How do you mollify them for your perceived insult but at the same time persuade them to contribute to your ministry. Well, naturally, you write the single greatest theological explanation of righteousness that's ever been penned. You appease the Jewish intellectuals that are leading this church by giving them a religious masterwork, a letter unrivaled by anything else in Scripture. You honor this important church body residing at the center of the empire by gifting them with the most influential evangelistic tool in the canon. In short, you bestow upon the Roman church your best work so that at the end of the letter, you can ask for money. (laughs) Which is what he does in chapter 15. But we'll cover that when we get there. Paul is more deferential to his audience as a result of that background. He's more deferential to them than any other letter you're going to see that he writes. Notice, for example, in verse 5, Paul speaks of the church leaders in Rome as, notice he says, fellow evangelists and church planners. He says, we have received apostleship, speaking in the plural. Now, the Greek word for apostleship there is different than the word Paul uses to describe himself as an apostle in verse 1. In verse 1, Paul uses apostolos, which is the noun that describes the man. We can define it sometimes as one who is sent with a message on a mission. That's an apostle. But in verse 5, he used the Greek word apostole. And apostole is a noun, again, but now it describes the mission of going out, not the person of an apostle. So what Paul is saying is, I am an apostle, but yet you, Jewish leaders in Rome, and really all Christians, we share a common mission of going out. We're just not all going out as apostles. Do you see the difference? So these Jewish leaders have been living that calling, and it's self-evident. Their church is growing. They're making the most of their opportunity. So he says, you are going out as I do to call Gentiles. Did you notice that at the end of verse 5? Why did he say Gentiles so specifically? Because he's speaking to fellow Jews who are trying to also reach a Gentile audience. He says, just as you yourselves are also the called of Jesus Christ. So he's building bridges here with these men. And then he concludes his opening sentence by naming his readers in verse 7. To all the saints in Rome. Now, obviously, we know what Paul meant by saints. It's the Bible's label for anyone who is born again by faith in Jesus Christ. The word in Greek is hagios, and it literally translates sanctuary. By our faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has made us his sanctuary. Saints are people that God dwells in. That's where the word really has its meaning. So collectively, the church has become Christ's sanctuary. Collectively, we are saints. We're the temple of God, Paul says in 1 Corinthians. Now, some religions have redefined the word saint 
to mean a person who merits entrance into heaven by an exceptional degree of personal holiness. It reminds us why Paul needed to write Romans in the first place. Because the question of who enters heaven is at the heart of his purpose in writing this this letter. It's at the heart of the gospel, right? How do you get to heaven? The Bible says we're saints because God has taken up residence inside us to bring us to heaven by his righteousness. That false definition completely flips that and says the opposite, that we enter heaven on our own merits. Do you see the craftiness of the enemy there? To take the word saint, which means God put us there, and to turn it into a word that describes someone who put themselves there. That's one example, just one, of the confusion that exists both in the church and outside the church concerning salvation. I say in the church in in the sense that there are those in the church who are misled by bad teaching on exactly what their salvation means and how they obtained it or what can happen in the future. Those kinds of misconceptions are at the heart of the weakening of the church. And as a result, it's so important that we understand these things from Scripture. And with that, Paul follows with a customary benediction of grace, peace from God the Father and the Son. His introduction is theological truth, but it's also an artful effort to draw his readers to his side. And as he continues in verse 8, we have more of the charm offensive for the Jewish leaders. Look in verse 8. He says, First, I thank my God through Jesus Christ for you all, because your faith is being proclaimed throughout the whole world. For God, whom I serve in my spirit in the preaching of the gospel of his Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you. Always in my prayers, making requests, if perhaps now at last, by the will of God, I may succeed in coming to you. For I long to see you, that I may impart some spiritual gift to you, that you may be established. That is, that I may be encouraged together with you while among you, each of us, by the other's faith, both yours and mine. I do not want you to be unaware, brethren, that often I have planned to come to you and have been prevented so far so that I may obtain some fruit among you also, even as among the rest of the Gentiles. I am under obligation both to Greeks and to barbarians, both to the wise and to the foolish. So, for my part, I am eager to preach the gospel to you who are in Rome. Paul says this church's faith is proclaimed or announced throughout the whole world. Now, we don't know what it was about their faith that inspired such talk, but... You know, you can assume some obvious things, I guess. They must have been fervent in evangelism, or they wouldn't have been growing. They must have been devoted in their service to the needs of the body, or they wouldn't have been honored, looked upon as a model. They must have been resolute in the face of persecution, because although it wasn't at full force yet, it was still there. So for all those reasons, perhaps others, Paul says, I never failed to make mention of you in my prayers. Now, I think it would be easy to think that Paul's statement here is merely hyperbola or flattery. You know, the whole world's talking about you. I don't think it's hyperbolic because it's prophecy. Because it's absolutely true today. As a result of Paul's letter to Rome, the faith of this church has been proclaimed throughout the whole world over and over and over again. Right? So every time this letter is read, the faith is proclaimed over and over again. So whether Paul meant it prophetically or not, we don't know, but the Spirit did. And that's the effect of their faith. Also, take note, Paul's extended commentary about how he wants to visit them. It it almost feels like he's trying too hard, doesn't it? It seems like that, right? But... He says he longed to see them. I want to impart a spiritual gift. He doesn't mean a gift of the Spirit there. He he actually defines the nature of that gift in verse 12. He's actually talking about himself. (laughs) He's saying the gift he wants to share with them is his teaching, his leadership. He wants to edify and establish the church. The word establish in Greek could be translated as strengthen the church. In a sense, he's saying, I want to bring them the gift of myself. And it's not a statement that lacks humility, though it sounds like that. He's speaking truthfully because that's the impact he knew he had on every church he went to visit. After all, friends, that's precisely why this church wants him to come, right? It's because they know the effect he has when he shows up. But then it's back to the elephant in the room. Why haven't you come yet then? Verse 13, he says, look, I don't want you to be unaware. Or another way to say it is, you should know that I wanted to bear spiritual fruit with you, even as I have been doing with the Gentiles. So he's saying, look, it's not my fault. I've been prevented from coming to you. I love this line. I've been prevented. Who would have prevented him? Well, the answer is obvious, right? He's implicating the Lord here. He's saying the Lord has prevented me from coming. In verse 14, Paul says, I was under obligation to Greeks and barbarians instead. A Greek is a Gentile who's educated. A barbarian was a pejorative way for a Jew to describe a Gentile who was not educated, basically a non-Greek Gentile. 
But he says, in general, that's who I'm supposed to go give my time and attention to. And he says, I wanted to come to Rome, but the Lord has told me I have to reach others instead. What that tells you is that a prosperous, Jewish-led, Jewish-taught church in a faraway, rich city like Rome was not a top priority for God in sending this particular apostle. And it makes perfect sense, right? They didn't need what Paul had as much as a church like Corinth needed it. He knows they're offended because he spent so much time with uneducated barbarians instead of coming to this faithful Jewish-led church. And he puts the blame squarely on God. Now, look, there are times when you can blame God. And this is one of those times. The moment when Adam did it in the garden, not such a good time. But when God prevents us from giving people what people want, because what God wants is something better for them, then you can blame God, so to speak. Just make sure you defend his decision. There's a way you can blame God and then distance yourself from it, you know? God didn't let me. I don't know why. I wish I could. It was his fault. No, you're not doing that. You're, and I don't think Paul does that. What you're saying, though, to them is, it wasn't a matter of personal vagaries. I, it wasn't capricious. I didn't sit up one day and decide I like these other people better than you. This is by God's appointment. I'm an apostle by his appointment. It's his message. It's his gospel. It's his spirit. I'm going where he tells me to go. And it's revealing to me to see that even Paul experienced times when his personal desire for ministry conflicted with the Lord's desire. Because that's what he's admitting here, right? Even Paul apparently experienced frustration because he says, I kept asking over and over again and God hasn't let me come to you. Even Paul's discernment, as great as it was, apparently fell short because why would he ask if he didn't know that God wanted him elsewhere? That should encourage all of us through personal struggles about obeying the Lord versus pleasing others, understanding what he wants and why we don't have what we think it should be. The Lord knows we need help to follow him, and he will guide us as we go. Just expect a few more no's than you prefer, but in the end, it's to your benefit. I mentioned earlier that it's likely some in this church may have even been wondering if Paul was ashamed to preach the gospel in Rome. I mean, at some point, if you don't know why Paul hasn't shown up, you start inventing reasons. That may have been one of them. And look at verse 16. Paul defends himself to that comment in the next verse, and it becomes a transition into the theology of the letter. Verse 16, he says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. We are now moving into what I call the thesis. This is Paul's thesis for the whole letter. If you haven't noticed on your little chart, we just transitioned out of a block. At this rate, we'll finish this book in no time. He says plainly, I wasn't ashamed of the gospel, perhaps despite what some were saying. And he says, how can I be ashamed of a message that contains the power of God to save Everyone who believes it. Moreover, why would Paul be ashamed to share this message with Jewish leaders in a Roman church? Because he says this message was intended to be delivered to everyone, to the Jew first, but then to the Gentile also. And you may know that Paul's pattern in ministry was to go to the synagogues first before he walked to the the Gentile side of a city. But in first here, we mean first in all respects. The Lord determined that the Jewish people would be at the center of his plan to save humanity, not just the Jewish people. Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter 4 that salvation is of the Jews, which is to say it originates with and comes through the Jewish people for the way God has established it. The Jews were the first to receive God's promises in the covenants concerning salvation. They heard of it first through their prophets. They had the honor to birth the Messiah in the line of David. They were the first to witness his preaching and his miracles in the area of the Galilee. They were also the first to reject him as he went to the cross. Later, it was Jewish apostles who were the first to deliver the gospel to their countrymen. And then from Pentecost outward, they have been delivering it to Gentiles. It's always of the Jew first. In fact, if you know the way the tribulation goes as we enter into the beginning of tribulation when there's no church on the earth at that point, where does God go as he restarts evangelism? 144,000 Jewish men. It will always start with the Jew because that is God's purpose. Not because they're better people. He says, you were the least of all nations. It was simply that he chose them. That's the only thing that matters. Paul calls his message of salvation, this message that came through the Jew to the rest of the world, he calls this message of salvation the gospel. Most Sunday school kids could probably tell you what the word means, what its definition is, gospel. What does it mean? Good news, right? Good news. Paul's message was the good news of how a person may be saved. It is the message of how you enter heaven, how you can live forever, how you conquer death, how you escape the penalty of sin. In that sense, calling the salvation message good news is probably the greatest understatement in the history of the world. Because 
God's message of salvation is not just good news, it's great news. There's never been any greater news that's ever come to humanity from the foundations of the earth, right? But thanks to the enemy's lies, the word gospel is losing its meaning fast, both in and around the church today. Today we have many messages that compete for the title of gospel. Uh, I have unbelieving family, as many of you know. And I've had multiple opportunities to try to work with them to understand the gospel. And I have found that some of the biggest challenges I face in that conversation is they have been taught through other systems of, of religion that gospel is a very malleable word. It's a word that can mean loving people or feeding people or helping people or being nice. or It's like their golden rule. It, it doesn't have real firm meaning. It's not a certain message. It's a general thought, a feeling. And there are false religions pretending to be Christianity that claim the gospel says things that it doesn't say. Things like, we have to earn our entrance into heaven. Which, by the way, if that were true, that's anything but good news. <laughs> Telling me I have to work my way into heaven is not the news I want to hear. And there's false teachers in the church, in and around, who claim the gospel is a message offering promises of earthly riches or Freedom from earthly worries. And others claim it's a message of physical healing. I mean, it's whatever we think our audience wants it to be. And so we keep moving the, the goalposts around. But then again, that's why it's so important we study Romans. Because believers need to know precisely what our gospel message is, what it says, what it doesn't say. It's a message of how one may enter heaven. It is good news because it doesn't depend on us. It's good news because it says... We can face death and hope knowing we will live again, that we have peace with God. So over the next 15 chapters or so, what Paul's going to do in this book from this thesis is he's going to explain that message of good news in all its fullness. So you could express the gospel in a few words, but if you think you can capture it in its fullness in anything less than 15 chapters, Paul stands ready to tell you that you're wrong. So understanding the gospel means understanding the next 15 chapters of Romans. If you want to truly appreciate what it is you have been saved in, through, by, and for. So we're going to begin tonight with that theological understanding in a very brief, you know, very simple way. We're not going to get too deep, obviously. We're going to go to verse 17 now. And Paul gives a very concise definition of the gospel. So he's introduced it as his thesis. He begins as any good term paper would with a definition. And the definition is, for in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, but the righteous man shall live by faith. Now, there are three key parts to this definition, and they're important to see because they become uh, major sections of the letter going forward. Each of these, Paul is going to examine in greater detail later, but let's look at them just briefly. The first part, he says, the message of the gospel is a message of righteousness, that word gets thrown around a lot. There was a 60s group, the Righteous Brothers, right? They call themselves that. And what does it mean? Well, definitionally, it just means innocent. It means just, being right, in other words. You could say it's the opposite of sinfulness or wrongdoing. Obtaining righteousness is the central dilemma for all humanity. How can a human being be right in all respects? How can we forever and entirely remove that part of us that leads us to think, say, or do what is not right? At the heart of every human being is that thought. How can I do what's right? Even if our interest in doing it is completely self-centered. You know, stay out of jail, keep my job, whatever. There's still that desire. What can I do to be right? And I think every person instinctively recognizes his or her own unrighteousness and longs for what is right, both in themselves and in the world. But the question is, who determines what is right? Isn't that where this problem starts to get a little complicated? What is right? And that leads to the second part of Paul's definition. It is about the righteousness of God. So the righteousness we need to seek for, the one that the gospel offers, is the righteousness of God. As the creator, as the lawgiver, as the judge of his creation, he alone determines what is right. He sets the gold standard for that, the only standard for that. So the standard for what is right, or we might say the standard to enter heaven, is God's standard. That which is of God is by definition right or righteous. And therefore that which is not of God 
is by definition unrighteous. So the beginning of the gospel says this, our pursuit of righteousness must begin with our understanding of God and his righteousness, because that's the standard. From that point, then, we may ask the question, how do I equal that standard? How do I become righteous? If righteousness is defined by God and I want righteousness, how do I become as righteous as God? That leads to the third part. We obtain the righteousness of God, Paul says, through a revelation. Now, you were probably going to think I said faith at that point, right? And we will talk about faith. But Paul says it is revealed. Don't skip over that word. The word revealed in the Greek is in the third person middle tense in Greek. And to help you understand that, that form indicates that the subject of this sentence is acting in its own interest or on its own behalf. It's a a tense in, in Greek that we don't have in English, so that's why it's kind of hard to understand it. But I can say it in another way. Paul is saying the righteousness of God reveals itself to us in the message of the gospel. We don't discover righteousness. We don't search for a message of righteousness and find it on our own. The righteousness of God finds us in a message that reveals itself to us from faith to faith. Our faith in that message, of course, is the manifestation of God's righteousness in us. By manifestation, I mean it becomes evident. And that righteousness is made evident from faith to faith. That is, the righteousness of God is being revealed from one believer to the next believer like a chain reaction in the world. Now, Paul has a lot more to say about all three of these. In fact, I hope what I've done in introducing them is just piqued your interest enough that you're dying to get into all three and understand them better because that's what the letter is going to do for us. But we have to leave them for now, and I need to move on because that's where Paul's going, and there's something else we need to touch on tonight before we end. Paul ends this definition by quoting Habakkuk 2.4. Behold, as for the proud one, his soul is not right within him, but the righteous will live by his faith. So the prophet says that the one who takes pride in himself does not possess a right heart. A person may think themselves good. They may think they're worthy of heaven because of who they are or what they do. And if they do that, if they have that thought, they are self-deceived and their heart is not good. Because where righteousness comes from is by faith. For a righteous man lives by faith, not by his self-worth. And when he says he lives here, he means two different things. To live means to go through life depending on faith alone. And the way I like to say it is this. You put all your eggs in the Jesus basket. You know, it's people out there who say they believe in Jesus. And if you wait long enough, they'll say, oh, and Buddha and myself and some other things. And they're thinking I've covered all the bases. That's not someone who's living by faith. Because by definition, faith in something that claims to be mutually exclusive requires that we forget everything else or we don't actually have faith in its claims. So he lives day to day by his faith. He expects that his faith was sufficient because he's convinced that the promises of God are true. But then, of course, secondly, he lives eternally because of his faith. So he will not be disappointed when he dies. Having laid down the thesis, having defined it, now what would you expect Paul to do? What would be the next logical thing to do? You start attacking all those points, right? Look at your third block. This is where these blocks really help. Before Paul elaborates on the meaning of righteousness and moves forward into the whole discourse, he first has to address some common misconceptions on how you become righteous. So before he explains how you become righteous, he explains how you do not become righteous. And this section, as you see, runs from 1 all the way to chapter 3, verse 20. And there are four parts there, as you see, that I've outlined for you there. Paul's going to show you how paganism does not get you to heaven, how moralism does not get you to heaven, how nomianism does not get you to heaven, how Judaism does not get you to heaven. These are the four major worldviews for how someone may become righteous, or so some think. Paganism is the worship of the creation. Moralism is the view that on balance my sins are less than my good works. You might think of moralism as the scale in the sky. Nomianism is law. By following certain rules, I get to heaven. Don't drink caffeine. Don't drink alcohol. Don't dance, chew. Don't date girls that do. I will get to heaven. (laughs) Funny how that creeps into the church too, doesn't it? Nomianism, laws. Islam is a religion of laws, law keeping. So is Mormonism. And of course, Judaism is its own unique category in the sense that it is of one religion only, but it viewed Jewish identity as a prerequisite to righteousness. And he deals with that here. So those four categories have to be set aside before we're ready to accept what can be. 
Paul's going to look at all four of these. Only after refuting them, then, does he go on to describe the correct way to righteousness. In fact, if you want to just glance in your Bible, if you have a real Bible that has pages in it, <laughs> not those fake ones that the Antichrist is going to corrupt one day when you're not looking on no, just, just kidding. All right. I'll take it off the tape. All right. If you look at the end of the second block and the beginning of the fourth block, and they flow together like they were, there was never anything between them. I think you'll find this block on false views to be very helpful because if you've tried to reach your friends and neighbors with the gospel, they are somewhere in that block. Whether they know it or not, whether they're particularly devout or not, they're somewhere in that block. And reasoning with them as best you can on the fallacies in their thinking is a helpful way to get them wondering if they've really found the right thing or not. Maybe opening a door for the conversation you want to have on the gospel. So as we study these false views, let's start with one thing they all have in common. They all hold a false understanding of the standard to enter heaven. That is, how righteous do you have to be? How good do you have to be to warrant eternal life? Sinful humanity has always assumed that the standard for heaven is within their reach. Though they may not believe they're good enough, they do believe they can get there if they're interested in this conversation at all. And that self-deception begins with the wrong definition of the word righteous, or I'm going to say good. We can use the word good, and you'll see why in a minute. So let's start with this question. Are you a good person? That's a good opener for someone who lives in that third block that we're talking about. Are you a good person? If people are being sincere and authentic with you, most of the time they'll say yes. Even the people that you think are maybe the worst person you've met (laughs) will find some way to rationalize that they are good. So are we good? Do we live good lives? Are we good people? At the moment you ask the question, you have to come back to the conversation I had a moment ago. What is good? What's your standard? And before you answer, I want you to consider how Jesus defines the term. If you have a moment to flip, it's only two verses, but you might like to look at them. Luke 18. Look at what Jesus says in defining the term good in the Gospels. Luke 18, 18. Luke 18, 18. A ruler questioned Jesus saying, Good teacher... What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Let's stop there. You know, it's, it's an ironic answer on Jesus' part because he is God, so he is good. And it's not so much that he's trying to bait this guy into recognizing that he is God. It's not the point at all. He knows that's not going to happen. It's more to demonstrate to this man that he has brought certain assumptions to this word that are wrong. So I have a man here of power and wealth, and he asks Jesus what is essentially an age-old question, the eternal question, really. What do I have to do to inherit eternal life? His question has certain assumptions with it, and it has an internal contradiction. First, he asks, what works must I perform in order to merit eternal life? He's assuming, therefore, that the solution centers on his works. Wouldn't you agree? And... More than that, he's assuming that it lies within his ability to obtain it. We know that's his thinking because no one asks for directions to a place that they can't possibly reach. No one goes around asking, how do I fly to Jupiter? Because there's no way to get there anyway. You can no more find your own way to heaven than you can fly yourself to Jupiter. So it's the height of presumption that a man should ask that kind of question of God. You tell me, God, just tell me whatever I have to do to get to heaven and I'll do it. Just lay it out on me, I'll do it. But then the man contradicts himself because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And an inheritance, by definition, is something assigned to us by someone else. An inheritance cannot depend on your work. No one earns an inheritance. So the man is both expecting that his works can produce the outcome he wants, while at the same time acknowledging that God alone has the authority to grant someone entry into heaven. So essentially what this man is asking is, how by my actions can I influence God so that he would grant me the favor of eternal life? It's like how many times do you have to mow your, your rich old uncle's lawn to ensure that you get a good place in the will? It's that thinking. Men of great power and wealth are used to thinking this way a lot about things, right? They assume their influence can be used to cause others to do their bidding, even God. Now to this, Jesus asks the man, why do you call me good? Jesus focuses in on the key misconception that is driving this man's wrong thinking about heaven and righteousness. This man has a warped, self-serving definition of good. 
And this is mankind. This guy's basically a representative for all of us. Because mankind, men, women, generally, acknowledge that God is perfect and that we are not. Now, everyone says that, right? No one's perfect. We usually say that right after we've made a mistake. But it's, it's the common refrain, right? No one's perfect. No one's perfect. So we get that. But at the same time, we imagine ourselves good enough to warrant heaven even in our imperfect state. That assumption lies at the heart of this man's question. Here's what he's saying to Jesus. He's saying, I think I'm close, but how much better do I have to be to make sure? Jesus says, well, keep some commandments. And he's quick to say, oh, I've kept them all. He thinks I'm in pretty good shape. We know this man probably just meant that as some idle compliment, a a greeting intended to gain Jesus' attention, a little flattery, you know, ingratiate himself to Jesus and so on. But that just shows you he's using this word so casually because he, he doesn't have a serious understanding of it. It exposes his lack of thought concerning its meaning. He's just throwing the word around. Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. And I'm going to use the board here for just a second. Those of you who are following on the audio, you'll catch on. Jesus says, no one is good but God alone. What he's saying is this. In our way of thinking and this man's way of thinking, goodness is a scale. So it has an endpoint down here and it has a range and it has an endpoint up here. And you can anchor those endpoints with examples. You know, who would we put at the bad end of this ranking? What person might serve as a poster child for us? Yeah, isn't it funny how we only have one person we think of now? (laughs) Who did we use before 1939? I don't know. And, and what you might put at the other end at this, I'm talking within human beings here, obviously. The other end of this would be the paragons of the faith of the church or good people, people who've done wonderful acts of kindness and bravery and charity, and you put anybody up there you want. Good people, excellent people, the best. I was going to put my name there, but I thought that might be a little... That's my wife coughing. Back. Somebody want to get her a mint? She might choke. And where do we put ourselves on this scale? Now, it's interesting, right? Because 99.9% of all people are above average. We all put ourselves somewhere on the scale. Jesus says that's not how it works. He says, if you've been imagining this, you need to erase this because this is not how God thinks. What does God say? Here's God. That's what good is. God is good. And if you're not God, what are you? Everything that's not that dot is bad. How bad? By drawing this as a point, not as a scale, he makes it to be less good than God is to be 100% bad. That's the scale God uses. So you are either God or you're 100% bad. There's no in between. So the standard to enter heaven is to equal God's goodness. Close don't count because no one's close. Not in any meaningful sense. As you've probably heard a million times, the analogy of throwing a rock to hit the North Pole, right? Two people standing in the same place throwing rocks, trying to hit the North Pole. You throw it farther than I do, but neither of us get close. And that's the analogy you can use to describe how we relate to God's righteousness. The world's false view of righteousness operates on the assumption that righteousness is found on a sliding scale and that close is good enough and we conveniently imagine that we are on the right side of that standard. Maybe on a bad day we'll acknowledge we've slipped down, but we really don't fear because we assume we'll get right back up there when we want. This is why the world thinks they can reach heaven. They always assume the ability to get to God is within reach, and we just have to put our minds to it, and we can do it. Paul alludes to this common misconception as he introduces the next section. Paul says in verse 118, he's stepping now into the conversation of paganism, but just gently. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness because that which is known about God is evident within them for God made it evident to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen being understood through what has been made so that they are without excuse. So far from being righteous or even close to righteousness, Paul says the world is actually filled with ungodliness and unrighteousness. So ungodliness means being unlike God. So we are not just a little unlike him. There isn't just some small little gap we have to cross to get to heaven. In reality, we are completely unlike him in nature. And we are not just short a little righteousness, but we are 100% bad. So if you want to go back to your scale for a moment, here's heaven. Here's the other end of the scale, and here's everyone. 
pretty daunting problem to solve, isn't it? Yet despite the world's self-evident ungodliness, self-evident unrighteousness, it still thinks itself unworthy of God's judgment and wrath. In order to arrive at that view, Paul says the world has to suppress the truth. It's not merely that they ignore it. They actually have to work against it. And Paul says that is further unrighteousness. They're doing it through a lie. What is the lie? That we are all good enough? That God does not care enough about our sin? Or even that there is no God at all? Or that our lives lead to nothing in the end? Whatever their explanation is. But what they're doing is suppressing the concept that I am in trouble and I am accountable. Paul says the wrath of God will be revealed against such as these. Though it's coming for the world, we know that. And if you die today not knowing Christ, it comes that day. In a time to come, Peter says it will be revealed against the earth in fire. So God will hold the world accountable for its ungodliness because he can't do anything less than that. He's just. He has to do what's right. And yet, when God chooses to bring that wrath, Paul says he will not have been considered unfair in doing so because he did not leave them unaware of himself. Notice Paul says in verse 19, that which is known about God is evident within them. Now, it's important to understand what Paul is saying and what he is not saying. Let's say what he is saying first. Paul is saying that God has placed inside every person, every human being, both the capacity and the opportunity to know of God. The Greek word for evident just means to see something plainly. We might say self-evident. So let me give you an example. I could say that the existence of the sun and the moon is plainly evident. It is self-evident. No one needs to be taught of their existence since they are plainly seen by all. That's a self-evident truth. Similarly, Paul says the existence of God, of a creator God, is plain to all humanity because his existence is self-evident to our conscience. Now, in a minute, he's going to make the argument that the creation itself is a testimony, but he's not even there yet. He's saying inside us, before we look outside, there is a testimony to his existence. In our conscience, Solomon says it this way. He says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God has made everything appropriate in its time. He has also set eternity in their heart. Yet so that man will not find out the work which God has done from the beginning even to the end. He says God has set eternity in the human heart, but not such that we can know all that he's doing. In other words, it's not that we know everything about God. We just know of him. So no man upon his death will truly be surprised to find out after he dies that God exists. Not even those who walk around today claiming they don't believe in God. When the moment comes, they will not be surprised that God exists. They'll be ashamed that they didn't acknowledge it. But because they suppress this truth which God has planted in their heart, God will be seen as just when he reveals his wrath against them. So we say they are without excuse. Now, Paul is not suggesting that this instinctive knowledge of God is sufficient to bring someone to a knowledge of the gospel. He is not claiming that everyone has within themselves the gospel, and nor does he have to give them that. God is not required to do that in order to hold them accountable for their sin. In fact, in verse 19, I need you to see in the Greek, the phrase that says, that which is known, in verse 19, that's a verbal form of the word knowledge. Paul is saying that the knowable things of God are evident. The things that are knowable. What is knowable? Well, God has placed in the heart a knowledge of his existence. But that's the extent of it. No one is saved merely because they know of God. But they can be held accountable because they know of God. What is knowable of God is enough to convict us for ignoring him. It leaves us without excuse, Paul says in verse 20. And men suppress that truth inside themselves. Moreover, in the second argument, as you just heard me mention, Paul says they suppress the truth of God, which is evident in creation. And they do this by perpetuating the first lie. And this is the heart of paganism, the first lie, the oldest lie in the book, literally in this book. It is the one that Satan authored. That is that the creation can replace the creator. Satan thought he could do it. He told woman and man that they could do it, and we've been telling ourselves that ever since. Whether that thing in the creation that we believe can replace God is something we see in the cosmos, or something we see in nature, or an angel, or a man, or even ourselves, it's all the same pagan lie. The created thing can become equal or greater than the creator. How significant do you feel when you witness the the stars and the galaxies at night? How wise do you think you are when you're you're struggling just to understand atoms or DNA or cells or other building blocks of creation? God did that in his spare time. 
How self-made do you feel when you see the perfection of the design of the human body? Any examination of what has been made leads you to an appreciation of the creator. If you can look at the works of a genius, an artist or musician or scientist, I mean, you look at what Michelangelo made and you think, what genius was responsible for those works? Then how much more should you look at the creation and understand that there's a God of true power behind it? You can see the immensity of the creation, look out at the stars and all that God has created, and you can recognize that whoever God is, he's big and he's powerful. And anything that powerful should be feared. You can observe the perfect order of creation, the balance of nature, the orbit of the planets, the mathematics of natural forces. And in seeing those things, you can understand God is a God of order, not a God of chaos. He has structure. He has meaning to what he does. Any God of order, therefore, could be known, could be understood. I should seek to do that. You can see that the world has been designed for the needs of man. We have atmosphere. We have food. We have a water cycle. We have dominion over all the animals. Clearly, whoever this creator is, he has special regard for man, and he has given us all the things we need. He has taken a personal interest in our needs. That demonstrates he is a God of mercy and love and care. This is a God I want to know more about. And lastly, we can see this world's wearing out. It's not going to last. And moreover, we can see that we die. So as beautiful as creation is, it's obviously not perfect. It leaves us wanting for a solution, particularly to death. And we don't know what that solution is, but we know that there's a caring, loving God with power and order, so there must be a plan. So we can assume that such a God of power, mercy, planning, order, caring, that that God will hold us accountable if we rebel against him. Those are the invisible attributes of God, clearly visible in creation. What the pagan does, and this is what we'll study in coming week or so, is they have taken all of that testimony, suppressing that truth with lies that explain it from another perspective. Chance, evolution, Big Bang, um, trees having their own life force, cosmic rays, aliens. We'll find whatever answer we need to suppress the truth of what it actually says, leading us away from what God has given us so that we would be without excuse. Dear Father, just briefly, I thank you, Lord, for the testimony of your word and your creation for the power that you've made plain and evident in all that you've done, for the righteousness that you've appointed to us through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ. By our faith in that work, Father, you have given us what we could not obtain in our own, and we thank you, Father, beyond all measure, and we'll thank you in all eternity. But, Father, we ask that as we learn these things today, we would not keep them to ourselves, and all that we learn tonight and what we will learn in weeks to come, we would be motivated, Father, to share it with enthusiasm and joy and in love with those that you put in our path, so that we may bring more with us as we enter into the kingdom with you in a day to come. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.